your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. And we'll be considering a paragraph or so of this um, text in Ephesians, so please do grab a Bible. If you don't have one, you can grab one underneath the chair nearby you because we're looking at this closely. And this is now the second of two sermons on marriage from the book of Ephesians. So as we move into this text again, I want you to know that as we talk about marriage, last Sunday and this Sunday, that I am not perfect. Um, I fail at the things that we're talking about every day. I fail throughout the day. And so I need to grow with you in all of this. I need your help to grow. Um, Christina and I, whenever we do pre-marriage counseling, we're reviewing things and rereading these, having these, these discussions, and then we often have conversations of how helpful it is to us because we just see how much more we need to grow and we, we want to grow. And so this is a continual process. So if you are married and you don't think about marriage itself much and how to grow, you really do need to because you're probably not doing it as well as you might think you are, right? We lack self-awareness so often, so I certainly do, and so I need these reminders. I'm convicted, I'm challenged in spending these two weeks together with you. And so I know that many of you are challenged in different ways by um, marriage and from this text in Ephesians that we've been looking at for um, a Sunday already, and I know some of you may be nervous about this sermon. Um, I know that um, some of you have ta- had, I've had great conversations with some of you the past couple weeks about marriage, and many of you have given me great insights, and it's been very helpful, and there's really just no way for me to say everything that needs to be said in these two weeks, right? And so um, there's going to be gaps, and we're, you know, I'm okay with that. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about some main things from this text. And as I mentioned last Sunday, this sermon on marriage doesn't just apply to those who are married. Right? If you are unmarried, either not yet married or maybe you've, um, you'll be married again in the future, um, this is for you because you might be married in the future and it's important to think through what is marriage, what, what are we trying to do through marriage, what is it all about? It's important to learn that before you get married. Also, those who are married in our church family need you, right? It's not just married people who can give advice and counsel to other married people. The challenges we face in all of our relationships, in, in marriages or friendships or otherwise, have some of the same deepest challenges of a lack of forgiveness, a lack of thankfulness, a bitterness, lack of communication, you know, all of these things. So we help each other. And if you're not married, you still are part of the deepest significance of marriage, which we saw last week, right? That marriage exists to point to as a picture of Christ's relationship with His church, this marriage story of Christ and the church. And one day when Jesus returns, all human marriages will give way to this greater marriage, and we as His people will be there together as friends of Christ and as friends of one another, and the human marriages will no longer define us. So we're we're all headed there together. So as we read this text, I want to remind us of the context, this text about marriage and husbands and wives was really never intended to be read in isolation. This is part of a larger letter of Ephesians, right? So the bigger framework is that the first half of this letter is all about God's grace and His kindness to us through Jesus in giving us forgiveness and adopting us and giving us new hearts and all of His grace. And then the second half of the letter turns to talk about how we now live through the course of our everyday life in light of His grace as children 
of God. And so we're calling this series The Gospel for All of Life. And so this morning really is the gospel for marriage because marriage is a central part of life for so many people. So our focus is chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, which is on marriage. But we're going to start back in verse 18 um, because that's really the beginning of this larger section and really frames the whole thing. So Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, we'll read to the end of the chapter. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But, and here's the key command that frames everything, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives submitting to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray together. Our Father, we receive this as your word, and we need your help by your Spirit to understand this rightly. We need your wisdom to help us know how this applies to us today. We need your Spirit's power in our hearts and minds to help us to fulfill this. We need your grace to be rooted deep in our hearts so that we can feel the safety to admit where we fail and when we fail and confess that to you and others. And we need one another here. So we pray that you would help us to receive your word, to understand it rightly with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this text really shows us that marriage exists to be a picture of the gospel, Christ's love for the church and this relationship between Christ and the church. And so what we're going to do this morning is see the framework for marriage, the roles or responsibilities in marriage, and the power for marriage. So first, the framework for marriage. So we have to see this bigger framework of, of which this vision of marriage is a part So if we just read this text that we just read out of this larger context of a Christian worldview, then it actually won't make 
much sense, or it won't, certainly won't make full sense, because this isn't actually, the biblical vision of marriage is not intended to make full sense outside of this larger Christian view of the world. Uh, Paul does not just say out of nowhere, wives, here's your role, husbands, here's your role, go do it. He, he himself is framing this. He assumes, first of all, that we're Christians who are reading this and seeking to fulfill this particular vision of marriage. So, we've heard and embraced the good news of the gospel from the first part of this letter. When it says wives and husbands, he's assuming that God is now the sun in our solar system, right, and our whole lives orbit around him. Now, marriage is a gift that God gave to all of creation and all of humanity before sin even entered the world. So, marriage, as we looked at last week, as defined as a covenantal union between a man and a woman, this is God's definition of marriage universally through all human history. And yet, the, the power to pull it off and to see what marriage is really, truly, deeply all about in this text, this is given to people who have already embraced Jesus, and they have this framework. And then second, he infuses his teaching um, about marriage with Christ's relationship with the church. So he's motivating us not just to have a, a, a bland definition and idea of what marriage is supposed to look like and then just kind of just go do it, but he's actually infusing this with instruction about Jesus and the church so that we'd have a clear understanding of why he calls us to live this way and how to actually do this. The roles of husbands and wives flow out of a love story between God and His people, right? If you scan this text we just read, especially verses 22 to 33, I mean, I did this, I just kind of printed it out and I highlighted what is directly about Jesus and the church, not directly about husbands and wives. About two-thirds of it was highlighted, right? The majority of this text is explicitly speaking about Jesus and the church, and Paul is doing that in order to help marriages, or to understand why they exist. So, the, the roles of a husband and wife flow out of this. And so, that's why we need to know this bigger framework. That's why last Sunday, um, I gave this big picture overview. And so, if you did miss last Sunday, that really is the context for this morning. And so, I encourage you to listen to that one in order to make sense of this morning's message. Because we're going to interact with others in this culture on this topic as well, and we have to make sure that we step back and understand at least for ourselves this bigger picture, and it's helpful to share this with people. Um, so we looked at this last week, but here's some key foundations. First, I encourage you to write this down um, if you have, have a pen. Here's kind of these foundations for understanding what marriage is to, to look like. First, God is a God of love. We believe that God is a trinity, one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally existing as a community of love, effusive love. This is ultimate reality from a Christian worldview, that God is a God of love. Second, history is a story of love. All of human history is a drama. It's a cosmic love story. We see this story woven throughout this text, right? Jesus came and He served His people. He gave Himself up for us on the cross. He, he loves us. He lays down His life for us. He died that we might be forgiven and washed and cleansed. The word here, sanctified, right? set apart, devoted to God, transformed to love Him back. 
And all of history is headed toward an eternal future with Christ and His people as His bride existing in this fellowship of love. Third, marriage exists in order to reflect the cosmic story of love. Marriage exists to teach us about what human history is all about. God created marriage to picture the relationship of Christ and the church. We saw that at further length last week. Fourth foundation, gender is a gift. God created humanity with two sexes, male and female, and it's a gift. Men and women have equal worth, equal dignity, equal value, and yet God made them different. And we see it biologically, we see it in a number of ways. And in a marriage, a husband and wife take on different roles. So a husband has the role of, according to this text, a sacrificial servant and a loving leader. And the wife has the role of joyfully following that lead. So Christian marriage really will not make full sense outside of this framework and those foundations. And this is, and it always has been, countercultural. As we read this text, you may be thinking, this is strange, right? I mean, in, if you're com- coming out of the assumptions and the, kind of the, the air we breathe as a culture, we come to this text that speaks about husbands and wives having these unique roles, and it just seems strange. I know for some of you, though, I mean, you may be thinking, maybe it's not strange to you, but you're thinking at least, I know to a lot of people, this is very strange, very strange to understate how they feel about it, right? For others, I mean, and this, is, this does sound radical and morally suspect in our culture, um, but we need to remember that this really was countercultural from the beginning. In fact, I think for some of us, maybe as we think of men and women in marriage, husbands and wives, maybe the idea of their roles here doesn't sound that strange, but this larger framework sounds strange, right? That human history is a cosmic love story. I mean, this should sound strange to everybody, in other words, at some level, right? Until we adjust to reality, which takes a long time. Um, so here's what we need to remember, though, that this was countercultural from the very beginning. When we look historically at the first century culture in which this was written, we see that this was radical then as well. Those who first heard this text, I mean, we've read it this morning, Someone heard it for the first time, right? These, these people at Ephesus. Those who first heard it did not think, uh, yeah, yeah, that's what I've always believed. And they, they didn't like share it with their neighbors, expecting their neighbors to think like, oh yeah, I mean, what's so, what's so new about that? I mean, that just, that wasn't how it landed. One biblical scholar said that what Paul says here is counter to every cultural pattern represented in that society. Every cultural pattern. It's countercultural to the core at its core. So this didn't just kind of slide right into the typical uh, vision of patriarchy at that time. It challenged the cultural patterns of men being oppressive. Uh, in, in fact, the, in the first century, women would have heard Paul affirming their dignity in a way they had not heard it affirmed outside of this. In their culture, wives were expected to be sexually faithful, and husbands were just simply not expected to be sexually, sexually faithful. Christianity was uniquely appealing to women in the first centuries of the church. Women found the Christian vision of, ref, of marriage a refuge from their traditional cultures in those first centuries. So let's remember that the Bible is odd in our culture, and that's because it's always been odd. 
So we certainly don't need to, right now, start thinking, now that our culture is shifting, how do we make the Bible, how do we change the Bible to kind of fit in? The Bible's never fit in. And so, like, when we sign up for following Jesus, we kind of just sign up for being different. And so, let's embrace this and try to understand why. So, although Christians, it's also helpful to recognize, although Christians are certainly increasingly weird in our culture, um, our culture is actually weird from a global and historical perspective, right? I mean, the, the vision of, of gender and marriage and sexuality that our culture is experimenting with and, and moving to kind of a majority embrace is actually a minority through other cultures around the world and historically. So, my, my point in bringing that up is just to say, we're all weird, so let's just sit down and talk about it, right? We don't need to be mad at each other. We don't need to try to fight each other. Um, if we disagree in our culture, let's have grace, let's have patience, let's just try to understand, here's why I'm weird, let's hear why you're weird, right? We're all weird. Nobody fits in globally or historically. Um, so let's have, have conversations with grace. So in light of this, let's now look at the specific roles and responsibilities of wives and husbands. By the way, just a side note, I mean, what I just said has massive impl- implications for our tone in conversations, right? For social media posts, or shares, or emails we forward around. I mean, Christians need to put the seatbelt on with self-control of any kind of hostile tone or condescending tone. Um, Let's be winsome, kind, open up conversation. Okay, second, roles of marriage. Wives come first, verse 22, and then we'll move to husbands. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, submit is probably the most controversial word in the book of Ephesians, so we're going to need to think through what this does not mean and what does mean. It's really important that we get this clear and and get very clear on what it doesn't mean. Before we do that, I just want to make two observations about the very fact that Paul is addressing women directly here, wives directly here. First, and this is obvious, but this this has incredible implications for marriage. Who is he addressing when he says this command about wives? Is he addressing the wives or is he addressing husbands? Obvious answer, right? He's addressing wives. Here's why that matters. Because husbands, he is not saying, husbands, make sure your wives submit to you. That is not what this says. He has a command for you. And it's to love and serve your wives. And he spends more time on that than he does on this for the wives. So this is not here for a husband to hold over a wife. It is not why this exists. So if you leave this sermon and you say, see, you need to submit to me, you have completely missed it. And you're in sin. Because you are disobeying the command that's around the corner for you to love your wife so well that it makes it easy for her to want to do that. You're in that moment making it very hard for her to want to do that. So that's first observation. This is addressed to wives, not husbands. Second, Paul is honoring women here. In the first century culture, women, children, and servants were not honored. They did not have the kind of dignity that men had. And yet Paul addresses in this paragraph and the following ones, women, children, and servants directly. 
One commentator said, just in light of kind of the mindset of the first century culture, he said that this kind of social dignity is unparalleled in the ancient world, right? To treat people as, as moral agents with dignity and address them like this. I mean, that, that itself was radical in that culture. So let's talk about this role of submission. The context of this command is actually verse 21. So we back up a moment. He says to the whole church, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In fact, in the original Greek, there's not a sentence break between verse 21 and 22. So it says this kind of more woodenly or literally, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands. And then he moves on. So here's what Paul's doing. He's saying that the the whole church needs to embrace this picture of mutual submission, and then he starts giving examples, wives to husbands, and then children to parents, and then servants to their masters following that. So in all of this, he's saying repeatedly as well, we do this in submission ultimately to Jesus, right, out of reverence for Him. So he's calling the whole church community saying equal dignity, but there's, there's order here. There's different roles that people have, and we're called to recognize those roles and affirm them out of reverence for Jesus Christ, all of us submitting together um, to Jesus. So we all have to submit in different relationships, right? Here's a few examples of what would be included. We've all been children who need to submit to parents, and some of you still are in that setting. We've all been in employment settings, or most of us, where we need to submit to those who lead us. We're all citizens who need to submit to law or certain government leaders in certain circumstances. Members of a local church are to submit to elders. Individual elders are to submit to the other elders. All Christians are to submit to Jesus in everything. So this shows that the the call to submit actually applies to everyone in all sorts of circumstances. And it also shows that we all have equal worth and value. And being in a relationship, in an employment, um, or in a local church, or as citizens, or in a family doesn't at all say anything about any less worth or dignity or value. But society and local churches have a certain order to them. And Paul's calling Christians not to subvert these in, in that way, but to live out the roles that fit with the way God's ordered things. So what does this mean then? in light of that broad category of the submission we're all called to give, what does it mean then for wives to submit to a husband here? Well, in order to understand what it does mean, we have to know what it doesn't mean. So first, this does not mean that wives submit to every husband or every man, right? It says, wives submit to your own husbands. Many have gotten that wrong and and try to have this posture um, men have a posture where we kind of, any woman should submit to them because they're a man. That's not what this is saying. This is wives, submit to your own husband. It's a specific relationship that's formed. Second, they do not submit in an ultimate sense. Jesus is the ultimate authority, and wives and husbands both have to submit to Him. Verse 21, right, introduces this whole topic by saying submit to one another in different roles out of reverence for Christ, which means that when Paul says what he does in verse 24, right, in everything to their husbands, it's qualified. A wife's ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. So if the husband calls his wife to sin or to violate her conscience, uh, he is in sin and she should out of love, refuse. 
out of honoring Jesus and out of love for husband, refuse to submit to that. Third, this does not mean that wives are less competent than husbands. And the greatest example of this is Jesus and the Father. Jesus willingly submitted himself to the Father. And this did not show his weakness. It actually showed his greatness. Turn just a couple pages to your right to the book of Philippians in chapter 2. Paul's calling this whole church at Philippi to be like Jesus. And he says this in in verses 6 to 7, Be like Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And because of this submission, verse 9, therefore God the Father has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Tim and Kathy Keller wrote a great book on marriage called The Meaning of Marriage, and Kathy uh, wrote that this text in Philippians, for her, as she wrestled through this through her life, took the sting out of this idea of submission because she recognized that Jesus has essential equality with the Father, and yet He voluntarily submitted to the Father. In fact, His submission then was a willing and holy voluntary gift to the Father. She said this, if it was not an assault on the dignity and divinity of the second person of the Godhead to submit Himself and assume the role of a servant, then how could it possibly injure me to be asked to play out the Jesus role in marriage. It's really insightful. So, you're holding these two texts together, we have an, in marriage that um, a, a wife is given the role of the church. In Philippians, wives and husbands and every, all Christians are given the role of Jesus. So, it's actually the role of Jesus as well, the dignity of submitting to an equal, which is very hard to do. And Jesus did it willingly. A fourth aspect of what this doesn't mean. Fourth, this does not mean that a wife doesn't persuade or even rebuke her husband. Christians are all called, as we saw in Ephesians 4.15, to speak the truth in love to one another. That's not suspended for marriages. So, a wife should lovingly address her husband's sinful attitudes. A wife should refuse to submit to a husband who calls her to do something sinful. I mean, there have been so many times where Christina has gently and kindly let me know when I have a sinful attitude. And she's addressed my harsh tone with her at times, and I've needed to repent. She's addressed my anger with the boys at times, and she'll just gently take me aside and let me know she thinks I need to go apologize, and she's right, and I do. I need to go repent to my son and apologize for my harsh tone. So, if a a husband also… I mean, this is is all sorts of categories. So, if a husband is being um, sexually degrading or cruel, she should, for the sake of Christ and her husband, address that. If a husband twists this text and calls her to submit to sin, she should lovingly, out of reverence for Jesus, refuse. With the spirit of love, she should persuade him to change. And if he refuses, she should seek the appropriate help from other believers or the elders of our church. I mean, the the process of church discipline, right, of 
of people addressing sin in one another's life and church leaders addressing sin in one another's life, leading ultimately to the point of if, if there's a refusal to repent being put out of the local church because we can't affirm that someone who's walking in sin unrepentantly uh, is a believer. We can't, we can't publicly affirm that anymore. And that process applies to marriages as well. So if you are in an abusive marriage, please do know that uh, the leaders of this church would love to help you. Please let an elder or a member of pastoral staff know. I agree with Kathy Keller who said that the most loving thing that you can do for a husband is call the elders to initiate a process of discipline and call the authorities to arrest him. That's the most loving thing that a wife can do to a husband in certain circumstances. So that's, that's what this doesn't, submission doesn't look like then. It doesn't mean uh, any of those four things. Um, so what does it look like? And again, this is for all of us in our roles that need to submit in our circumstances. All of us have some role. What does it mean to submit? Well, it means to put yourself under the authority of another person. Again, not ultimate authority. Jesus has that. It means to follow someone else's lead. It means to put someone else's will ahead of your own will. So for wives, then, it would mean to follow your husband's loving leadership. The husband leads with love, and the wife follows with respect. That's the vision of this text. And one of the key words that clarifies um, what this is to look like is the word respect in verse 33 at the end, kind of the summary statement. He says, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So this isn't to be a begrudging following. It's to be done out of respect for her husband and his responsibility to lead. And then Paul says why this is given to wives. Why is this calling given? Well, he appeals to the relationship of Christ and the church, this larger framework. He goes to this gospel framework, verses 23 to 24. Let's just read this again. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So the reason for the wife's role is rooted in Christ's relationship with the church. So this is not rooted in traditional cultures, right? This is not rooted even in a particular uh, vision in the Old Testament. It's rooted in Christ's cosmic love relationship with the church. And Paul calls the husband head here. The picture is of a head and a body, and Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. You know, throughout church history, this word head was always interpreted to have some sense of authority in it. But then in the 1970s and 1980s, some interpreters suggested that it doesn't mean have a meaning of authority in any sense, but it means source, like a spring is the source of a, of a stream. So they'd say this doesn't have anything to do with authority at all, but uh, numerous studies uh, since then have shown that that really doesn't work, and that's not how this word is used um, in Greek. The way Paul uses the word head in Ephesians even reflects this vision um, that he's giving here because Christ in chapter 1 verse 22, for instance, is called the head over all things. It refers to his authority and it's given as a blessing to the church. So let's think practically together. What does this look like for a wife to do this? Well, our starting point is not some other vision of marriage that we've seen throughout history that we like. Our starting point is Jesus and the church. This drama of Christ in the church. So wives don't learn what it looks like to fulfill this by looking back to the 1950s in America, right? But looking to the church in Scripture. 
And by the way, there's a, a movement that's afoot, I don't know how large it is, but of women trying to recapture the 1950s vision of womanhood. There was an article in, uh, I saw on the BBC just a, a couple weeks ago um, called this, Submitting to My Husband Like It's 1959, Why I Became a Traditional Wife. That's not helpful. There was a lot wrong about the vision of womanhood in the 1950s. Um, Christina and I are reading a great book right now called uh, Eve in Exile um, by Rebecca Merkel. It's a book on femininity, and it's, it's excellent. And she makes this great case that we actually in our culture have a great opportunity to go back to the Bible and back to this vision of Christ in the church and get a fresh vision for what it means to be men and women and husband and wives, not returning to some kind of ideal that we've learned from fiction or, um, you know, of, of 1950s or maybe what, if you like Pride and Prejudice, kind of that era, right, um, or any, anything else, you know, Downton Abbey or Little House on the Prairie. We don't need to go back to one of those. Um, there were some strengths and weaknesses in all these different settings. Let's just get a fresh vision. Let's not try to return to something. Let's get a fresh vision of what this can look like here. So what does it look like? Well, this text in the New Testament as a whole really doesn't give a lot of details. So we have to be very careful to avoid rigid minds, a rigid mindset about specifics. So here's what I want to do. I just want to point out three general ways in which we'd fail to fulfill this. One way to fail at this is to be a bossy wife. One way would be this pathway of really just not taking this seriously at all, um, of just not having any sense of submission at all. This would be a marriage where a wife insists on equality of decision-making power. She may manipulate to get her way. Maybe if she isn't getting her way, she uses emotion as a manipulation tool. Another way to fail at this would be to be a sheepish wife. Uh, again, lack of, there's lack of for lack of better terms, there's probably better ways to put this, but this image of a wife viewing submission as removing all participation in decision-making process, of doing whatever her husband wants, not challenging him in his sin, not offering wisdom that she has to participate in decision-making. Um, another way to fail would be to submit with a disrespectful posture, a wife following her husband's lead, but not with any sense of respect or joy. She does it while complaining or more secretly manipulating to get things her, done her way or by going along to getting along, to get along, but then when she meets with her friends, disrespecting her husband and speaking about him in disrespectful ways. So big picture, here's what this looks like. And I just encourage you to talk with one another about the details. I'm not going to flesh those out here. Talk with one another. Um, are you receiving your husband's loving leadership? Are you encouraging him? Again, this, this is going to look differently in different settings, but are you encouraging him in his goals? Are you helping him with decisions that affect his life, your life, the family, while letting him take the, the burden of final responsibility for those decisions? Are you honoring him with, when he's not around with the way that you speak about him? Do you seek to be unified in a vision for life so it's easy to join together? Uh, and are you making it easy for him to lead out of love? So those are a few questions to, to begin the process. Let's turn to husbands now. Central command to husbands is to love their wives, and Christ's self-sacrificial love is the model here. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church 
and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. There is no harder vision for love than this. The standard for a husband's love is the cross. Self-sacrificial giving. This, is, this means you can't say, um, I love my wife, while neglecting her and not caring for her with this great intention. If you want to know what it looks like to love a wife, you look at Jesus loving the church. This is saying, look at this cosmic act of love in history that Jesus made, and now you reflect that with your wife, and you live like that. And then Paul fills this out by drawing attention to Jesus. It's filled with affection, verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So how are husbands supposed to care for their wives? Well, in the same way they take care of their own bodies. Now, some of you with husbands that have poor hygiene may be thinking, oh, please tell me it's more than that. Um, actually, one way a husband can love a wife is by having better hygiene. You're welcome. The kind of self-care uh, is the kind of attention that we give to meeting our own needs, right? When your body feels pain, you rush to help it. If you have a headache, you get medicine. If you are thirsty, you get a drink. If you're hungry, you get food. We serve ourselves all day long. This is the kind of care that husbands are called to provide for their wives. They view them as their own bodies in that sense, which means that when a wife has a need, the husband rushes to help in the, with the same kind of care and intentionality that he does his own self. This is totally different, totally different than how some have thought this text itself even would work itself out in application. As though being a husband and being the leader means that the husband gets all his needs met. No way. The husband's role actually demands that he put his wife's interests ahead of his own. He is not in leadership to be served, but to serve. He's not in leadership to have his interests met, but to meet the interests of his wife. His role is not to make sure his wife meets his needs. His role is to make sure he meets hers. I think this should challenge the way many of us men often try to fulfill even this role of leadership in the home in a selfish way. Right? We don't even see our selfishness because we, we might think that it's in service of this biblical model of leadership, right? No, I'm doing the biblical thing. I'm being a husband. I'm being a leader. And then in practice, if anyone were to watch how that actually looks, you're like, man, that is selfish. You making decisions, that's not, that's not the weight of responsibility to, to make a decision that's you just getting your own way met. And what's hard is you just forcing your will, right? This is a vision of taking the responsibility to lead and make the decision, but all taking into account the interests of those whom you lead. So loving self-sacrifice is the standard. This means that there's two ways to fail, at least, not just one. The first way to fail is being a petty tyrant in the home, right? The tyrant thinks that being a husband entitles him to be served rather than to serve, self-oriented, don't consider the needs of others or the opinions, doesn't ask anyone their preferences and opinions, threatens a wife when he's not getting his way. That vision is essentially the vision of uh, being a husband, of seeking to make other people your servants rather than you being the servant of others. And by the way, if you are living this way and you are abusive in any way, you need to repent. 
and seek help. You need to apologize to those whom you have abused with your words or in any way, emotionally, physically. You need to open that up to a brother in Christ and ask help. Um, Tell a trusted friend, and you need to ask a church leader for help in growing in this. But here's a second way to fail on the other end of the spectrum. A passive husband also fails. A passive husband may not be being a tyrant, but he may be just as self-serving, wrapped up in his own jobs and his own hobby, hobbies, in his own me time and downtime, that he's not thinking at all about how he can serve and bless his family and serve and bless his wife. But Jesus did not stay in heaven and leave us to fend for ourselves, nourishing, cherishing, orienting his life around the care of his bride. So what does this look like? Well, what does it look like at 7 p.m. when the TV might come on? Well, it means the husband doesn't say, pass me the remote. It means the husband, well, I'm sure in some situations he doesn't need to anymore because the, the assumption is that he has it, right? No, this means that he says, what would you like to watch, right? What does it look like when they get in the car? It doesn't mean he controls the radio station for his private interests. He thinks, what do you want to listen to? The husband's posture, it should not be serve me, but how can I serve you right now? This means that we seek to meet needs before they even arise. We anticipate what might be needed um, in a certain moment. This means when we get up in the morning, we don't just think, what do I need to do to get my day off to a good start? But we think, what might my wife need me to do for her to help her get her day off to a good start? When she says that she'd like to get time with friends, but you would like her to be home, you die to yourself and you free her up for that. When you're making a decision and you have different preferences, you prefer to defer to her. When you're making a decision that's very weighty, you seek her input, and when you disagree, you you keep talking, you keep asking her opinion, you ask her why she thinks that way, you look trying to make a decision that would please her. And if you're at an impasse, uh, you pray, you seek counsel from a friend, ideally a friend that she trusts will give you good wisdom, not just agree with you. And then when you actually do make a decision or come to the time, you don't say, fine, we'll do what you want, right? That passes the burden to her. Uh, You bear the responsibility of making that. Okay, there's a lot more we could say. Time's almost up. Time is up. Almost up, depending on how you define it. Um, So really quick, the last couple minutes, I want to make this problem harder and then better uh, with the power of marriage. So we'll do this by looking at the context here. Uh, Look back at verses 19 and 20. Paul said that we are to do everything in life now with a song in our hearts and with thanksgiving. Everything. And then he moves right into this text about marriage without even ending a sentence in Greek. So it's not enough to just grit your teeth and do this, but to do it out of thankfulness, out of reverence for Christ. Husbands serving with a song in your heart. Wives submitting with a song in your heart. How, do we, how in the world will we kill self-centeredness to the point that we can do this with joy? Two keys, the gospel and the spirit. So first is the gospel. You have to receive Christ's love for you to be empowered to live this out and reflect it. And this isn't just a one-time reality. Um, becoming a Christian is receiving Christ for all that he is in, giving, in being your king and your forgiving savior. Being a Christian is living in light of that for your ongoing sin and being empowered by him. And so this is calling to us to live in thanksgiving through Jesus Christ. That's the way Paul put it. 
So we do this marriage through Jesus Christ. We have to see moment by moment Christ's husband-like love for us, serving us. Let that melt away our own selfishness so that we would then reflect that love to others. So the gospel, in other words, is not just the picture to reflect in marriage. It is the power to do this moment by moment, dwelling in the gospel, living in the gospel. So maybe this morning you need to bring all of your failure that you have neglected to take seriously or you've not confessed to the Lord or those you've sinned against. Just bring that all out into the light. Confess that to the Lord. Take time this afternoon. Confess that to the Lord. Receive His love in Christ and let that melt your heart to begin reflecting that to others. And one of the first steps you do there is apologizing to others as well. Second, the Spirit. Look back at verse 18. This is actually the primary command that leads into all that follows. The command is to be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who puts the song in our hearts. It's the Spirit who leads us to see Christ's love. It's the Spirit who enters into our interiority and opens our eyes to behold Jesus' love, changes our hearts to love Jesus in response for His love. And so here's how it works. The Spirit leads us to see Jesus and His love for us, and that melts our heart by the power of the Spirit to then be empowered to reflect His grace to others. So we're filled by the Spirit throughout the day to do this marriage well. So which means that the first thing that you and I need to do to have a healthier marriage is not to work on our marriage. The first thing you need to do is to be filled by the Spirit um, and become thankful in all things. And as you become a more thankful person throughout the day, you then bring this thankful person into your marriage. You bring that thankful, that gospel-saturated thankful person to the dinner table. You bring that person into the bedroom You bring that person into hard conversations, this spirit-filled, gospel-thankful person that that is so grateful for Christ's love that you're going to die to yourself by the Spirit's power and reflect that to others. So this is what the world needs to see. I mean, Christians have been so discredited on the topic of marriage, partly because we have failed in so many ways, right? And so one of the most powerful things we can do in our culture is to just shine the light into the darkness. And if the culture crumbles around us 500 years from now, we just keep shining because no Supreme Court, no president, no cultural movement can keep me from loving my wife, right, like this, right? So by the Spirit's power, let's just be a bright light. Let's shine this. Let's uh, pray together, and then we'll sing the doxology and go. Our Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love in Jesus. Thank you that ultimate reality is a cosmic love story. Thank you that we get the privilege of being caught up into this. We pray that what we've heard this morning would go with us, that that you would renew our minds day by day, renew our hearts to reflect this well, bring proper repentance and confession where needed, help from one another where needed, power from your spirit through your word where needed. And we pray that we would be a surprising light in our culture. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let's stand together.